Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. everyone and welcome to season two of apocryphal australia i'm michael pryor i'm Stephen higgins and we're back again with some more fabulous tales from australia's past that we've been spending an awful lot of time researching to bring to you Stephen, tell us what you've been up to well as is my want, I've done a fair bit of traveling around this great big country of ours and uh and i've always thought I'm always keen to hear stories of the towns I stop in, just just in case there's some material for the for the podcast. And invariably there is. And I've always thought the best place to find out this material is to, or get this material, is to talk to the locals. And the best locals to talk to are those three old guys that are always in the pub. So I've been in a few pubs. <laughs> they are the font of wisdom, let us say. Now. We mustn't forget also our correspondents, people. We haven't asked people necessarily to send in their material, but we've been deluged. Indeed we have. And and again, a, a little bit like last season, um, I'm, I get a bit surprised at how many people still use snail mail. Um, maybe it's just people who are into apocrypha, I don't know, but uh, we get a lot of letters, actual physical letters. That's true. We're doing our best to keep Australia Post above water. Hmm. I sometimes wonder, though, if, if some of these people are just, I don't know if they're technophobes or, or, or what they are. They just don't like email. But uh, but we get lots of emails as well. Yep. Now, of course, we have to sort through these because there are definitely people who consider themselves jokesters. They're having a lend, if you like. I mean, if they were online, if they bothered getting up to technological speed, they'd be called trolls. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's always a problem. But I think a good rule of thumb is if if the story is just too out there, it's probably true. Absolutely. The answer, if it's too good to be true, then it isn't, does not apply in this field of work. Absolutely not. All right, Stephen, I reckon we need to dive in with our vignettes for this episode. Have you got one ready to roll out to us? Yeah, I've, a little bit like last season. I've, I've tried to mix it up. I'd, I'd like to. It's all very well looking at the the places and and the people are really interesting and and sometimes the things that that, that we that we look at. But I think today I'd I'd like to start with a person with the the lovely name of Misty Dreams. <laughs> all right, yeah, I, I, I'm on the edge of my seat already. Misty Dreams. Misty was born on the 12th of June, 1967. She grew up in a loving household with her parents, Ohio Drummond and Sienna Trent. Ohio and Sienna encouraged Misty to be an individual and to follow her dreams. They hoped that by giving their children aspirational names, they would grow into them and that their names would shape their lives. Misty had three younger siblings. Her brother, Literary Ideals, became an author of some note. The next younger sibling, Fleur Arranger, was a landscape architect and young, bravely independent, went on to represent the electorate of Quincy for many years in federal parliament. 
Misty, however, was something of a disappointment to her parents. She started out as an astrologer, but found her heart wasn't really in it. She tried weather reporting, but no one took her seriously. She went on to become a special effects artist, a sleep therapist, an artistic dancer, and finally she got sick of it all. She changed her name to Stop It You Bastards and went on to become a war journalist. It was in this role that Misty, now known as Stop It, came into her own. Every time she visited a war-torn country to report on the latest atrocities, the fighting stopped. The actual wars often didn't even have time to be formally declared before Misty's presence brought an end to hostilities. Thus, Misty began her career as a United Nations peacekeeping force. She toured the world, visiting potential hotspots like the Netherlands, Hawaii, New Zealand, and many other locations. Now, a lot of people are going to argue that these places were not exactly violent hotspots, and that is precisely the point. While celebrated within the UN, Misty began to envy the success of her siblings and the fame that their vocations had delivered them. Misty, of course, was unknown outside of the United Nations. She changed her name yet again. Now known as outrageously famous, she found herself pilloried by all and sundry for her appearances on various reality TV shows. Deciding that fame wasn't all it was cracked up to be, she changed her name to comfortably well off and found herself the subject of ongoing interest from the taxation office. Deciding that she knew when she was beaten, Misty reverted to her original name and opened a small shop in suburban Melbourne selling crystals, dream catchers and various new age music and inspirational texts. Whilst this establishment did reasonably well, it didn't explain the incredible amounts of cash that seemed to come Misty's way. All was revealed, however, when upon her untimely death in 2003, it was discovered that the New Age shop was simply a front for a very sophisticated marijuana business. Misty supplied almost all of the marijuana available in Australia, and it was sold under the brand name of Misty Dreams. Her own brand name of hemp became so popular that all the other suppliers became franchisees of the MD brand. Misty Dreams a cautionary tale about being careful how you name your children. Oh, nice one, Stephen, nice one. I think it's wonderful the way we're uncovering all of these polymaths, these Australian jack-of-all-trades who excelled, well, tried to excel in so many different spheres. Lends credence to the fact that everyone has a story to tell, or in Misty's case, quite a few stories. Well, Stephen, I've got uh, another forgotten personage from the past here, and this is Philo Pargeter. And part of the trouble of looking up, uh, trying to come to terms with Philo, is that we don't have a death date. We've got, he was born in 1921, so I'm going to go right back to the start here. Fair enough. Philo Pargeter, son of legendary sofa maker, light industrialist and aviator Daisy Fingal, Philo endured an uneventful childhood to become one of the nation's top 50 hairdressers of the 1950s. Philo Pargeter entered hairdressing after completing a solid medical degree at the University of Adelaide in 1949, followed by a brief flirtation with the world of guard dog training. He began his hairdressing apprenticeship at the relatively late age of 30, training under the stern tutelage of Barbara Silito, 
manager of Barbara's Salon de Beauty in Pulteney Street, Adelaide. In later years, Pargata would look back upon Barbara Silito's mentorship as hard but fair, with Auburn highlights. Four tough years later, and Philo Pargata struck out on his own after a torrid argument with Silito over the colour coding of plastic rollers. It was the turning point in his career. After approaching local crime boss Mary, Mother O'Leary, Philo scraped together enough capital to turn his vision into reality. Almost single-handedly, he converted a run-down fish-and-chip shop in Port Adelaide into Le Salon, a destination offering complete hair embellishment as well as manicure and pedicure. Sadly, while it was years ahead of its time, his repayments were months behind their time. When Philo Pargata was unable to meet Mother O'Leary's demands, the shop spontaneously combusted late one night. Philo was sleeping in his small flat at the back of the salon and, badly burned, was dragged from the smoking ruins with only his second-best pair of scissors. Reports of what happened next are contradictory. Some eyewitnesses spoke of the hideously scarred face, some of his crazed eyes, others of his devilishly well-cut dressing gown and excellent sideburn trim. All agree, however, that something snapped in Philo Pargata that night. Despite all attempts to restrain him and take him to a hospital, he broke free and charged back into the charred wreck that had once been his dream. Seizing the shell of a burned-out hairdryer, he quickly fashioned it into a mask before fleeing into the darkness. After this, definite news of Philo Pargata is sketchy. Suffice it to say that soon after the destruction of Le Salon, rumours of a red-eyed vigilante began to circulate in Adelaide. Tales were told of villains being rendered unconscious by a shadowy figure using a heavy lacquer spray and waking to find themselves trussed up in front of the local police station and sporting a stylish layered haircut, often with a delicate but natural tint. Soon thieves and robbers were begging the police to take them in, horrified as they were of the enigma stalking the streets by night. The watchhouses were filled with the best quaffed collection of petty criminals in history. Bag snatchers were manicured to within an inch of their lives. Swindlers were sveltly styled. Pickpockets were permed. And Skull Donahue's eyebrows never looked neater. After months of this reign of stylish terror, Mother O'Leary's body was found in a South Adelaide boarding house. She was tied up and sitting in front of her dressing table mirror. Eyewitnesses spoke of the look of absolute horror on her face. Actual details of her death never surfaced in the press, but for many years it was rumoured that her hair had been entirely shaved off, apart from a large cocky's crest, bright red like a giant dunny brush. A letter claiming responsibility for Mother O'Leary's death was received at the offices of the Adelaide Advertiser the next day, signed Philo Pargata. He cited revenge as the motive and burnt sienna as the hair dye. The mysterious outbreak of hairdressing vigilante activity immediately ceased. Philo Pargata was never heard of again, apart from an appearance on an early Adelaide TV chat show, The Tonsure Hour, where his scathing opinions of the hairstyles of Adelaide's rich and powerful saw him immediately banned.
Well, Michael, there are certainly a lot of charges that could be levelled at the hairdressing fraternity. I mean, mullets are a thing, but this takes the cake. It certainly does. And he was a man of his time, a man for all times, some would say. Okay, Michael, this one is uh, is all about the very well-known Lassiter's Reef. In 1929, Harold Bell Lassiter announced his discovery of a fabulously rich gold deposit. He was somewhat circumspect about the actual location of the deposit and speculation mounted about just where it was located. It was also concerning that he was announcing that he had found the gold some 18 years earlier. Lasseter sought funds to go to the gold deposit, which raised concerns about the actual existence of what is now called Lasseter's Reef. In 1930, an expedition was mounted to find the deposit. It concentrated on the area around the McDonnell Ranges, which was one of the places that Lasseter alluded to in his reports. However, Captain James Underlay had other ideas. Underlay had served in the military for many years. He was about to retire and he knew his meagre savings would not serve him well in retirement. He needed another source of income and Lasseter's Reef was going to be it. He petitioned the New South Wales government for funds to mount yet another expedition. He studied the reports of Lasseter himself as well as many unsanctioned expeditions that has been, had been organised. He read and reread Lasseter's memoirs, notes and reports Satisfied that he'd narrowed the location of the gold deposit to just two locations, he began to put together his team. The team comprised himself, James Underlay, leader and tactician. Robert Peters, his number one and a famed engineer. Elliot Plum, logistics and a famed outback explorer. Amberley Northcote, geologist specialising in deserts. Kenneth Ambrose, cook. Arthur Gels, marine biologist, Ahmed Mohammed, outback expert and camelia, Terence Munro, famed Indigenous tracker, and various other geological experts, desert explorers and general hands. Any qualms about the inclusion of Arthur Gels, the marine biologist, were dispersed with the reminder that there was a certain similarity between deserts and seas, sand being especially prevalent, but there were still some questions being asked. Anyway, the expedition departed Adelaide on July the 24th, 1932. From Underlay's diary. We took our leave of Adelaide at 7am in order to make the best use of the available daylight hours, but had to return to Adelaide as I had forgotten the diary, which I'm now writing. We set off again at 12 noon in order to make best use of the afternoon daylight still available but had to return to base as we'd forgotten the camels. A 4pm departure was deemed best to take advantage of the late afternoon light, but we had to return to base as we'd forgotten the camels we returned to base for on our previous return. An evening departure was deemed opportune in order to take full advantage of the cooler night air. A quick return to base to secure some landings saw us leaving in good spirits at 11pm. We made camp some one mile and a half from Adelaide, satisfied with our progress. Later, diary entries were less optimistic. July the 7th, 1935. The men are in good spirits, but we have since hidden the rum. 
We're pressing on to our first target area in the McDonnell Ranges. We've eaten half the camels. Cook made a passable camel stew, which we had with a nice O2 burgundy. Sadly, we lost two men due to gluten intolerance. We could hear them, but we couldn't find them. August the 15th, 1935. The men are beginning to doubt the existence of the famed Lassiter's Reef. We've looked everywhere, and there's simply no sign of it. I myself have doubts about the wisdom of not including gold miners in our group. September the 12th, 1935. Failure. There is no way the gold is here. On to target two. Underlay had a backup location should the famed gold seam not be located in the McDonnell Ranges, and it was this second site that led to the tragic loss of the entire expedition. After gathering all that was left of the struggling expedition, Underlay headed for his next target, some 900 miles distance. And for those more used to metric, it would still be the same distance as 900 miles, but it would, of course, be expressed in kilometres. Reasoning that Lassiter had hidden a clue to the location of the gold seam in the name he gave it, Lassiter's Reef, the expedition made their painfully slow way across Queensland to the beaches near the Great Barrier Reef. The exhausted men, under direction from Underlay and marine biologist Gels, who came in handy, handy after all, took to a rented boat, sailed out to the reef and began to dig. No trace was ever found of the doomed expedition, apart from Ambly Northcote, who'd been sent back to the McDonnell Ranges campsite to see if they'd left the maps and compasses there. He was found starving and half-mad from thirst and unable to utter anything meaningful. He later made a name for himself in politics. The true location of Lassiter's Reef remains a mystery to this very day. Well, Stephen, explorers, they've got a lot to answer for. But thank God they exist because, gee, they provide a lot of material for us. Stephen, my second story is an event, and I am perplexed why this event isn't more widely known. This is the collapse of the Universal Lattice in 1875. I'm going back a fair bit here. So, in 1874, telegraphy was booming in Australia. Wires had begun to crisscross the country, and Australia was connected to overseas via the Port Darwin-Java cable. Communication and information were kings, which is awkward because you usually only have one king and having two kings can cause tension, but there you are. In these heady days of this wired revolution, this information macadamised road, it was only natural that many keen-sighted and ingenious daredevils saw the opportunity to make a buck. Small companies began to spring up like so many bulls in so many china shops. Enterprises were begun in backyard stables with young inventors keen to thrust forward in new, exciting and disruptive ways. And as well as planning their social lives, they also had ideas about how to make the most of the telegraphy revolution. In November 1874, a small concern was started in a backyard shed in Woolloomooloo, New South Wales. Brian Forbes, Archie Cantidote and Reginald Plather founded a firm they named Shenanigans and formulated a daring plan to connect the world. 
Their vision was for what they called the universal lattice, or unilat, in its vulgar shortened form. The unilat would knit all the telegraphy power of the entire world together to bring untold riches, peace, harmony and entertainment to everyone at all times. And they'd make a lot of money in the process. The exact methods for turning this into reality were a little vague, but the shenanigans found plenty of Sydney bankers who were desperate to get in on the ground floor. The business plan of shenanigans were blissfully simple. Forbes arranged the inflow of money, Candidate counted it, and Plather spent it. Within weeks, the three young men had all the ice cream they could eat, and three houses each, handcrafted broughams for each day of the week, and some really comfortable shoes. Then they floated their enterprise on the stock exchange and got really rich. The next week, the three best friends fought off a hostile takeover from Albie Donaldson and his mates, Incorporated, and then fought between themselves over the quality of morning tea biscuits. Sadly, the fame, riches and adulation went to their heads, so much so that they had to buy their own hat factory to make the outsized headgear they needed. A month later, Brian Forbes was discovered unconscious in the company of three dancers from Abel Donson's ballet company. Archie Candidate was planting pine trees on his newly acquired farm north of Orange, New South Wales, and Reginald Plather was unable to be found. Slowly it began to dawn on the financial world that the shenanigans company had not produced a single tangible product, or even a single tangible plan. Even the creditors began to get worried. A meeting was held in the new offices of the corporation without the founders. While much money was found in cardboard boxes, no planning documents, no telegraphic equipment and no connection points were discovered. The three principles of the shenanigans enterprise, the bright dreamers of the Unilat, were summarily voted off the board. In an abrupt shift, the company turned away from telegraphy and set its trust firmly and squarely in a solid business, one with a future, a blacksmith and farrier's franchising operation. Well, I find myself gobsmacked, Michael. Are you suggesting that the genesis of the World Wide Web was right here in Australia, or are you saying that the idea of making money by fleecing investors began here in Australia? It's a bold claim, but part of what we're on about is making bold claims. The bolder the better. Stephen, I'm going to swing straight into my third story for this episode, and this is the cruel Nancy hysteria of 1920. Perth, WA, in 1920, was the scene of one of the strangest incidents in modern Australian history. Unjustly forgotten, the cruel Nancy hysteria was a cause célèbre for seven months, and for that time it was the only topic for conversation and gossip in the state. Things began quietly enough on the 22nd of March 1921, when two children, Agnes and Robert McGecky, were reported missing after failing to return home from school. They were found that evening safe but disoriented and shaking. When questioned by the police, Agnes collapsed in tears, but Robert simply blanched, muttered the words, Cruel Nancy, and then asked for a shilling. 
The next day, a fruit and vegetable van was mysteriously overturned after a collision with a baker's van in Subiaco. The driver of the van, before he lapsed into unconsciousness, was heard to whisper, Cruel Nancy. Although onlookers argued that what he in fact said was either Cool Clancy or Tools Handy. Nevertheless, in the following week, police were inundated with Cruel Nancy reports. An old woman in Claremont swore she saw a tall, thin woman throwing mud at her clean washing. A butcher in Cottesloe maintained he chased off a short, fat woman who was waiting suspiciously for a bus. Three plumbers were adamant that they had Cruel Nancy locked up in an outhouse in South Perth after they saw her loitering there. But when the police arrived, the outhouse was empty. This spate marked the beginning of the true Cruel Nancy hysteria. The front page of the Daily News carried nothing but Cruel Nancy sightings for three weeks, reporting her as being seen near post offices, hospitals and pet shops. An ominous cloud formation attracted a crowd of onlookers, most of whom swore that it was in the shape of a woman holding a dagger. Posters began to appear in Fremantle, offering a reward for information about Cruel Nancy, but the telephone number proved to be a hoax. Police were issued with special instructions on what to do if confronted by Cruel Nancy, or confronted by someone who could be Cruel Nancy, or indeed confronted by someone who could possibly in the future be related to Cruel Nancy. Cells were filled to overflowing. In the week beginning the 7th of April, events took a turn for the worse. Cruel Nancy was blamed for a mysterious outbreak of hives among schoolchildren, a rise in the number of pigeons in the city, and a vague sense of disquiet and unease felt among the city's most prominent bankers. In the following weeks, Cruel Nancy was denounced by clergymen of all denominations. She was vilified in Parliament, and she was burnt in effigy in a large public display outside Perth Town Hall. A scuffle broke out among three rival effigy makers who argued over each other's representations, which were wildly different, ranging from a hunchbacked crone to a statuesque Valkyrie. Then, as suddenly as it began, the cruel Nancy hysteria ended. On the 22nd of April, Agnes and Robert McGehee again failed to return from school. After most of the city turned out to search for them, they were found later that night, crawling out from under their house. Robert looked dazed and uncertain in the light of the huge crowd gathered outside. Agnes hid her head, while Robert spoke at length about how they'd been chased all the way home from school by cruel Nancy, but she wasn't around any more because unkind Geraldine had scared her off. For the next two months, Perth was in the grip of the unkind Geraldine terror. Now, Michael, that was fascinating. And one of the reasons it was fascinating was that in my research for my next piece, I came across a direct link to Cruel Nancy. Oh, this is the stuff we love. Links, links, links. links. This, uh, this concerns the activities of a Reverend William Noddy O'Moole. O'Moole was a God-fearing, upright citizen who felt it was his duty to protect his flock and the greater population of New South Wales and indeed Australia from the evils that were prevalent in the colony at the time. O'Moole was born in the small Victorian town of Yark. He felt the calling to religious life when Marion McMurtry told him she liked men in black. After training at St Colin's Seminary, 
the young Omul was sent off to the flesh pits of the north in order to bring some good old-fashioned religion to the folk of Sin City. It was just after he arrived in Sydney that news began to filter through of strange activities taking place in Western Australia. These phenomena were put down to an entity named Cruel Nancy. Fearing that this angry apparition, this grim ghoul, would somehow come east and molest and tempt his flock, the Reverend Omul exhorted his followers to keep an eye on each other, lest someone should succumb to the ministrations of the entity. Omul held the view that Cruel Nancy was in fact a witch, and he began to closely scrutinise the womenfolk of his flock in order to detect any witchy behaviour. In 1922, he found his first witch. Ada Newell was a kindly old woman who had a penchant for cats. Cats liked Ada, and she liked them. Blackie, her favourite cat, could often be seen being cradled in her arms. Upon seeing this moving sight, O'Mool screamed, Witch! at the top of his voice. After the rest of the people around him managed to get out from under the tables, they saw the Reverend standing there aghast in, in disbelief. Apparently, he said, as soon as he identified the witch, she disappeared. People looked everywhere. Ada Newell, who'd also dived for cover lest the witch see her, helped in the search because she feared that the witch might have stolen her beloved Blackie. It was after this encounter that O'Mill redoubled his witch hunting efforts. He claimed to have found evidence of over 100 witches operating a vast coven in the heart of Sydney. The problem was to prove his finds to the many sceptics. Amul scaled reports of witchy behaviour both in Australia and more particularly in America. He listened to radio programs about witches and it was here during a historical discussion of witchery in America that a chance misheard remark led to the instigation of his Slalom witch trials. Every suspected witch that Amul found was transported to the snowfields of Mount Kosciuszko. Here, the unfortunate suspects were forced to negotiate a downhill run while zigzagging around a series of poles. If the suspect fell over, they were proved innocent of the charges of witchcraft and allowed to go free after a short alpine holiday, all expenses paid. However, should the suspect make it all the way to the bottom of the run without hitting a pole and within a certain secret time limit, they were declared a witch person and liable to the full force of the law. The fact that there were no laws pertaining to witches was not considered an issue, given that no witch was found using Omul's method. These trials became the basis for selection in Australia's Winter Olympic teams and the tasted success in many events subsequently. Bill Omul spent his golden years at the St Jason's Home for Retired and Loony Priests in Sydney. He spent most of his time here, sitting in the front garden, yelling at passers-by. Look, the Americans have got their their Salem, their Salem witch trial, which spawned an award-winning play, and film was made of that play. Why haven't we had the same here, Stephen? That's what I want to know. (laughs) We We should write a letter. Well, Stephen, that's it for episode one of season two, and it's been a jam-packed episode. It has, and don't forget that if you missed season one, episodes of season one are still available at, well, wherever you get your podcast from. Mm. And, of course, people need to get out there and do that subscribing and liking. That is essential for anyone who wants to declare themselves a modern, right-thinking person. And following. We like to be followed. 
<laughs> yeah, take that how you will, <laughs> loyal listeners out there. Get ready for episode two coming up soon. Yep, we'll see you soon. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? Okay.